Well, for anyone who has ever picked up a Bible and taken it seriously, truly searching to understand God and to know who he is, at some point, as they're reading through the text of Scripture, they come to this person named Jesus of Nazareth. And again, if they're honestly seeking, they eventually have to ask the question, who is this guy? It really is the greatest of all questions. Based on what they hear him say in the Gospels, what they see him doing in the Gospels, that is the question that trumps all others. Who is this guy? And in fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, that was the question being asked by those who were closest to him. Most of you know the story of Jesus stilling the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Both Mark and Luke recount the story on a, a day that had been filled with, with teaching on various parts around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus then says to his guys, well, let's, let's get in a boat and let's cross over to the other side of the lake. And so they piled into a small boat, and as they were, they were crossing, it was late afternoon, and if you've been to uh, Israel, you know that it's late afternoon when those storms on the Sea of Galilee tend to come up, and a storm came, and the wind started whipping, and the, the waves started breaking over the edge of the boat, and the text says that they were in danger of being swamped. They were literally in danger of sinking and drowning. Imagine. And of course, Jesus is doing what? He is sleeping through it, right? And so somebody, smart person, doesn't say who, goes over and shakes him awake and says, and he must have had to shout over the sound of the storm, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? <laughs> Man, to, to be a fly on that boat, right? And Mark says, Jesus got up, and this is the understatement of the, of, of the millennial. Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind. That's all it says. He rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, silence, be still. Now, the obvious question that should be asked, and when we read the text, we should ask questions that come up, right? Put yourself in the sandals of people on that boat. The obvious question is, what kind of a person speaks to nature like that? <laughs> An average human being, first of all, would not have been sleeping in that storm. And second, an average human being who was then awakened in the midst of that time of peril would have been in panic mode, right? Have you ever been woken up suddenly and, it's, and everything's going wrong? You're not calm. But Jesus wasn't panicked. He got up and he simply spoke to the weather as if he were sovereign over it. And the wind stopped and the sea became calm. And then Jesus turned around to the, address the 12, and he said, why are you afraid? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> right? Then comes the interesting response from these guys. Now, remember, these guys had just seen with their own eyes something absolutely incomprehensible. And their response is so interesting. They were afraid of the storm, but now they're even more afraid of the man who is in the boat with them because of what he's just done. Because with a word, he controls nature itself. And Mark writes, the disciples were terrified. They feared a great fear, is what the Greek says. They were terrified and asked one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That is the key question, right? Who is this guy? And based on what we know about God and what we know about ourselves as very finite, limited creatures, we know the answer because no creature can silence the wind and the sea. 
That is something that only the creator can do. So we know the answer. And the 12 were then struck with this combination of, of wonder and amazement and the fear of the Lord that day. And then let's not forget, while in the boat, Jesus also said to the disciples, do you still not have faith? And to us, that sounds a little bit harsh. This is early on in his ministry. These guys do not yet understand what they're dealing with. But what Jesus is doing in that moment is driving home an important message. When I'm with you, you don't have to be afraid. I'm in control of all things. I will either calm the storm or I will walk with you through the storm, but know that my presence with you changes everything. That's the point. So have faith and do not be afraid. Now, stepping back from that story, if, you, if you're a person who trusts the veracity of the Bible, how do you read that story and not walk away saying, this Jesus of Nazareth is God of very God? What other, what other conclusion could you come to other than that he is the word made flesh who for a time tabernacled, right, made his dwelling among men and women on the earth? That's the only rational conclusion from a story like that. Now, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, also had a lot to say about this Jesus of Nazareth long before that night in the little town of Bethlehem. Isaiah told us who the Messiah would be. So we're going to go to the book of Isaiah. So turn there if you haven't already. Isaiah chapter 9. As we were last Sunday, we are back in just this single verse. Isaiah 9, 6. You should know it. You should read it. You should meditate on it. It is a very, very important verse. Now, we're in week four of our Advent series. I don't have time to restate all of the, the background historical context for this verse, but if you missed the first three weeks, go back and listen to it because honestly, we, we like to cherry pick verses, especially at Christmas time, and pull them out and say, what a beautiful verse. But we should know what this verse says and means in the historical context it was written. And we've been talking about that for three weeks. So if you missed it, go back. But let's start in verse six for today. It says very simply, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And last Sunday, we looked at the important distinction between those, those two phrases, right? A child born, just like any other human child, represents the, the full humanity of Christ. And then a son given, not just a son of David, according to the flesh, which is important, but also the son of God sent from heaven, that part of Isaiah 9, 6 represents the deity of Christ. So you have both humanity and deity in this simple statement. It says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Pause there. We will come back to that next Sunday. I promise. That is really important. Here comes the sentence we're going to cover today. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then just for fun, let's finish the thought and read through verse 7. Because this is what we'll cover. By the way, next Sunday is what? Christmas Eve morning, which would be really, really cool. And we're going to cover verse 7 then. It says, there will be no end, catch that, no end, to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So let me start this morning before we dive into those. We call those the four royal titles of the Messiah. Before we dive into that, let me, let me draw a picture for you, just an overview sketch of, a, of the section that we're in in the book of Isaiah. Because look, raise your hand if you're a little intimidated by the book of Isaiah. 
Yeah, almost everybody is, because it's really big, and it's, it's, the, the language can be difficult. There's tons of prophecy. Trying to match it with all the historical markers can be hard. But Isaiah 7 through 11 is a really important unit of thought in Isaiah's prophecy that surrounds a couple of themes, uh, judgment, hope, and the promise of a Messiah. Isaiah 7 through 11. As we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, right, Isaiah prophesied the coming threat of judgment in the form of the Assyrian army. They're going to come and they're going to wipe out Israel, correct? But near the middle of the chapter, then God dropped this sign on the house of David, very famous prophecy that they should see and recognize. It says, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Then as you come to chapter 8, there's more information about the sins of Israel and a prophecy that the capital city of Samaria of the northern kingdom is going to fall, and yet there's hope. God promises to maintain a remnant of faithful believers within Israel among his people, which then leads into our chapter for today, chapter 9, and we get more information about you know, God being angry towards his people Israel, but this incredible hope that this this child is going to be born. This son will be given to us. And then we get these royal titles, right? And this discussion of an eternal throne, which we can't even fathom, an eternal kingdom, right? So we have that. Then comes chapter 10. And then, interestingly, in chapter 10, God, God does something that sometimes we struggle with. He says, Assyria, this, this wicked, non-believing Gentile people, is my tool of wrath, that I will use to pour out upon the house of Israel and Judah. But, he says, they too will be repaid for their wickedness. They, he will judge Assyria as well. And then comes chapter 11, and we will be here next week. The hope of Messiah's kingdom. You get this beautiful description of the coming of Messiah and this kingdom that he is going to establish on the earth, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. So it's a beautiful little unit of thought that is important to understand. The point is this, that Isaiah weaves together these progressive stages of the coming of the Messiah. In chapter 7, you get his birth. In chapter 9, you get his royal identity and character. And then in chapter 11, you get details of his reign over the entire earth as the king of kings. Three stages of the coming of Messiah. And yet we know that last one, that Messiah's kingdom, that has never come to pass under any king of Israel or Judah. And so when you close the Old Testament, right, it becomes painfully obvious that there's still more work to be done. There's still more things to be fulfilled beyond the Hebrew scriptures. And I'm going to save that till next week. But it's important to recognize that. Okay, back to Isaiah 9 in your text. Two things I want to do. I want to walk us through these four royal titles. What do they actually mean? And then I want to look at how uh, both our, our Jewish friends and our Unitarian friends, non-Trinitarian friends, how do, they, how do they talk about Isaiah 9-6? How do they sort of try to escape the plain language that Isaiah talks about there? So we'll do that as we walk on. So back to, to verse 6. Let's look at this first title, Wonderful Counselor. Now, there's a legitimate question about whether these two Hebrew words for wonderful counselor should be read together as one title or separated by a comma and read as two distinct titles. And depending on who you look up and, and where you do your research, 
scholars, Hebrew scholars are, are pretty much split on the, on the answer to that question. Remember, in ancient Hebrew, there were no commas. So it makes it difficult, right? So it's a matter of looking at the overall structure of the sentence to figure out the right way to do it. But either way, this is important to understand, either way, whether you say his name is Wonderful Counselor or you say his name is Wonderful, comma, Counselor, both of those words describe this child who's going to be born as uniquely remarkable. Okay, so the first word translated wonderful is pele, and while in English it looks like it should be an adjective, in Hebrew it's actually a masculine noun. A noun which refers to something, or in this case, someone who is a wonder. That's the key thing to understand. The description is of a person who is a wonder, meaning a person who is beyond our comprehension. That's what's being said here. And it is a word that shows up in other places in the Hebrew scriptures. And anytime we can do that, we can look at other places in the text to help us with interpretation. That's awesome. It shows up in the same noun form in Psalm 78, 12. Here's what the psalmist writes there. He says, the Lord worked wonders, wonders in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt. Those wonders in, the, in Psalm 78 is a reference to the miraculous plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh in freeing his people. In Judges 13, this is so interesting, the angel of the Lord, there's a request given to the angel of the Lord to explain his name. It says, the angel says, why do you ask my name seeing that it is so wonderful? What? In other words, don't, don't even ask my name because you cannot even comprehend it. That's what this word wonder means. So you put this together and you realize Isaiah is describing this future child that will be born, this son who will be given. He is an absolute wonder. He is a miracle worker and he is a person who will be beyond comprehension. Amazing stuff, right? Now the second word there for counselor, ya'etz in Hebrew, is commonly used as a verb that describes giving advice or counseling, right? So just, just as it's translated. So because wonderful is a noun and counselor is actually a verb, my opinion on this is that they should be read together and the most literal rendering of this term is this. This Messiah will be a wonder in his counsel. Get that? A wonder in his counsel. In other words, the son who's going to be given to us is going to absolutely boggle humanity in all the ways that he counsels in all the ways in particular he counsels his children. And Paul says this in Colossians 2.3. He says, boom, Christ in whom are hidden all, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is a wonder in his counsel. All, I, that's what it means. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. And we have all these other statements in the New Testament about what a wonder Jesus' teaching was, what a wonder his counsel was. Recall how in Matthew 12, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for constantly asking him for signs. And here's what he says to them. He says, you know, the queen of the south, who was the queen of Sheba from Ethiopia, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. Wait, Solomon's the wisest man ever on the earth. Jesus says, that's nothing. Look at me. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's a wonder. We also read about the response of the, uh, of the people when he taught. 
all who heard him, Luke says, were continually amazed at his understanding and his answers. Remember in John 7 in our series recently, the, the chief priests sent a bunch of soldiers to grab Jesus while he's teaching in the, in the temple courts and they come back empty-handed and they're like, what are you doing? Where, why didn't you grab him? Remember what they say? They say, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They're literally stupefied by his teaching to the point where they forget their mission to grab him. He's a wonder. And then last, Matthew reports, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority. People recognize this guy speaks differently than our scribes. He speaks with the authority of who? The authority of God. He's a wonder. He's a wonder in his counsel, which of course then, as soon as I was writing it this week, I thought about the end of Romans 11. You know how the end of Romans 11, Paul breaks into like this, this benediction of praise. It's like he's overcome and he says, he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's Jesus. He is a wonder in all of his counsel. Spurgeon, in his day, uh, in a sermon on this passage, beautifully sums up, I think, why Christ is such a wonder in his counsel. By the way, we love good counsel, don't we? Don't we love wise counsel? Here's what Spurgeon says. He goes, Christ is the counselor whom I desire to consult every hour. If only I could sit in his secret chamber all day and all night long. Because to counsel with him is to have sweet counsel, hearty counsel, and wise counsel all at the same time. You may have a friend that talks very sweetly with you, and you will say, well, he is kind, a good soul, but I really cannot trust his judgment. You have another friend who has a good deal of judgment, yet you say of him, I cannot find out his sympathy. But we go to Christ, and we get wisdom, we get love, we get sympathy, we get everything that can possibly be wanted in a counselor. He's wonderful in it, isn't he? Okay, let's keep going. That's, I mean, that's just one of four. Already, you're like, this is a pretty unique person, right? You with me? Good. Let's keep going. Now, I want to skip past Mighty God. I'm going to come back to that. Let's move on to this really intriguing title, Eternal Father. All right, the first thing to know about this is don't be confused. Do not be confused about what God is saying here. The use of the Hebrew word av here for father is not intended to conflate the two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. Hear this now. God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Father, but they are one God. Okay? To conflate the two is, is to, to say that the Father is the Son or the Son is the Father is to fall into a very ancient heresy we call modalism. They are two distinct persons of the triune Godhead. But understand that theological construct of Trinitarianism, which is obviously developed in the New Testament, would not have been a part of Isaiah's consciousness back in the 8th century BC. So we have to try to understand his language in that ancient Israelite context. And what he's doing is pointing to a unique character trait of this future child that's going to be born to us, that he will function like a father to all of his children. That's what's being said here. The way the phrase is structured, father is the primary noun. Eternal is what describes the type of father he will be. So father is the emphasis, and the type of father is eternal. So in my opinion, the, the literal rending in this phrase should be father of eternity. 
Father of eternity. And, and by the way, that statement has a whole laundry list of implications. First, it may be hinting at the fact that, yes, this child, this Messiah, is, go- is going to be identified, revealed as the creator. That he is the father of time and eternity. Or as some have put it, he is the architect of the ages. And obviously that also gets fleshed out more in the New, in the New Testament, right? And again, if we have a being who is eternal in nature and potentially here the creator, that is something that we would never, ever, 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 ever say of a creature. Am I right? Creatures don't create things. This can only be speaking of God. So this son who will be given to us is going to be a father to his children. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a father to your children? Well, we could probably come up with a whole list here. We got a bunch of dads in the audience. But again, in that ancient context, a father protected and a father provided, and a father instructed, and a father loved, and a father counseled, and a father faithfully served and led his family. And in all those ways, Jesus is a perfect father to you and I. We're his children. He is perfect in his protection, and perfect in his provision, perfectly loving, perfectly wise, perfectly tender, perfectly faithful. That's Jesus, our Father. And listen, I know at Christmas time, there are a few words that evoke more feelings at Christmas time than the word Father. Because some of us here, we're sensing right now this season a sense of loss. Maybe we had a, a wonderful Father who, who's now passed away, and it hurts at Christmas time, right? Or, or there's a, there was a longing for a really wonderful Father that was never actually met. And this is what's so important for us to understand. Jesus will forever be perfectly fatherlike in the way he shepherds you. He will always be perfectly fatherlike in the way he leads you as his child. And you are eternally secure in him. So even when we wrestle with those hurts and those pains from loss or a father who didn't meet our expectations, we have a father of eternity in Jesus. As we sing, we are his and he is ours forever. And nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can break that up, right? Not even death. In fact, death actually brings us nearer to Jesus, doesn't it? So we have a great father, amen? Amen. Third title is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And this is the Hebrew phrase, Sar Shalom. And it means just what you expect. This child will one day grow up to be uh, a great ruler, someone who will reign over a kingdom of peace. His rule will be characterized by peace. And of course, most of us are familiar with that Hebrew word, right? Shalom. It has all kinds of meanings. It's a word that describes tranquility and safety and wellness and happiness and health and contentment and also an absence of war, but not just the absence of war. And this perfectly follows the idea that we have a father who loves us, who will ensure that his children live in a state of shalom. That's what Jesus does for us, right? And you see this concept in many places in the Old Testament. In, in, the, in the prophecy of Micah, and by the way, Micah is such an interesting reader. It's not, it's not usually a book we turn to often, but Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah. They were prophesying at the same time. The book of Micah has been called a mini Isaiah. So if you're intimidated by Isaiah, go over to Micah. <laughs> you get a whole bunch of the same stuff because they're prophesying at the same time. Micah is the one who prophesies about both the birthplace of the Messiah and also his reign over his kingdom, all in one little section in Micah chapter five. 
Micah says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me, right, for God, to be ruler in Israel, ruler. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So wait, hold on. He's got an eternal past, but he's going to be an actual ruler on the earth. So interesting, right? And then it goes on. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. At that time, he will be great in Israel. No, he'll be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. He's the prince of peace. Now, both Isaiah and Micah prophesied that a future day is coming when the weapons of war will be, will be broken down and, 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 and refashioned into farming equipment because war will be a thing of the past. It will disappear from the earth. And they both predict a time of great peace that's going to come upon the whole world, which again, has that happened under any king of Israel or Judah? Obviously not. They're at war right now, aren't they? And so we expect that this is going to be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ when he establishes a millennial kingdom upon the earth where he will reign from Zion and he will be known to the ends of the earth. That language is all over the Old Testament. And in that day, as he reigns from Zion, he will be our peace. More on that next Sunday. I'm getting ahead of myself. But that's really important to understand. Now, there's also, I believe, a, a spiritual layer to this idea of Prince of Peace, something that's spoken about all over the New Testament and I think worth pointing out. Listen to Romans 5.1. You know this verse. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news, right? Because we're all born as children of wrath, right? The wrath of God hangs over every person because of our corrupted nature, because of our sin nature. But in Christ... We have the peace. We have peace between ourselves and God. And I believe that promise was relayed uh, to the earth when the angels came. Remember the birth story? What do the angels say? They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Haven't you, have you ever thought that you, you, you get your Christmas card and it says peace on earth and you're like, oh, that's so sweet. Wait, what peace? When did that happen? When has there actually been peace on earth? Certainly not in Jesus' lifetime or our lifetime, but there are layers to that promise that you have to see. First, that peace will come upon the earth when Christ returns. That's the promise of the millennial kingdom. But in the here and now, God's peace has come to those whom he is pleased with. What does that mean? What does that mean that God is pleased with them? Well, it means that for those who repent, and trust in him by faith alone to those who yield their lives to him and are justified in his sight, those people have peace with God. That, that's every believer. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. And we have so much more, right? It's, we don't stop there. We're like, oh good, the wrath of God has been removed. I have peace with God, but we have so much more. We have the adoption as sons and daughters. We have a great inheritance that awaits us. So for all these reasons, this is why Jesus... Remember, he looked at his disciples before he went to the cross and he said, look, guys, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you. And so he can say with a clear conscience, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. And that's the state that we live in. Even in, the, in all the tumult of the world, we live in a, a state of peace 
That's what Jesus said in the boat. Why are you afraid? Why are you panicking? When I'm with you, you can have peace. And by the way, that peace doesn't just stop with us as individuals. We don't want to go, oh, well, that's great. I have peace with God. Now I go on with my life. No, that peace is then designed to overflow into the body of Christ, into his church. God calls us to live out the one another's in scripture, right? With humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of what? In the bond of peace. You see how this works, all this peace? It all flows from Christ. And it flows right down to where we are today here in the body of Christ. We have the privilege, you and I, of experiencing the shalom of God, both as individuals and corporately as members of his body. Wow. What, what a prince we have. Amen? Are you tracking with me? It's a pretty unique child, right? Kind of. Okay, let's go to the last one then. This is the big one. Mighty God. Right? Let's come back to that. Of all the titles that we have here in Isaiah 9-6, El Gibor in the Hebrew is the most surprising and the most glorious. After all, what child could ever be born into this world and have people say, that's mighty God? It's impossible, isn't it? Mm, with God, all things are possible. That's the beauty of the Christmas story. He took on flesh. But this is the most surprising. Now, that word Gabor is found all over the Old Testament 160 times because it just, it just it means strong. It means mighty. And it's often used in the context of a warrior or of a hero in a story. And the word El is the generic name of God that emphasizes his strength, his might, and his greatness. So yes, in some way, and boy, I would love to crawl into the mind of Isaiah as he's writing, yes, in some way, he was prophesying that this promised child was going to be God Almighty in the flesh. Wow. This is the, the clear, one of the clearest claims of deity that you will find in the Old Testament, that the promised Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures is somehow the same being as Yahweh, the God of Israel. Be stunned by that, because that's a big claim. You can try to dance around the biblical language, but it's right there in black and white. God is one, and there is no God but Yahweh, and yet Yahweh is called El Gibor, and this Messiah is promised to be El Gibor. So you got to wrestle with that. you got to deal with that. So let me give you a few other places where this, this same phraseology is used, because it's not just in Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, going back to the Torah, it says, For Yahweh, your God, is the God of gods. That's the word El. And the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty, Gibor. So way back in the Torah, this was said of, of Yahweh. Psalm 24, 8, we sing the song, Who is this king of glory? It's Yahweh, strong and Gibor, strong and mighty. Jeremiah 32, Ah, Adonai, Yahweh, two, two names for God. Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, he's the creator, and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you, O great and mighty God, El Gibor. Same thing. So over and over again, right? Most importantly, Isaiah uses that phrase again in his prophecy in chapter 10. He says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, that is Yahweh. 
a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, to El Gabor. Yahweh is El Gabor, and so is this promised Messiah. So it's impossible to ignore the implications. If the Messiah is Yahweh, then what Isaiah has done here is basically leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the ancient Jews and for us to look back at to say, yeah, this is leading to the incarnation. This is leading to what Matthew and Luke talk about, to the incarnation. Amazing. And by the way, for anybody who might raise an objection, because this is often how the, reje- uh, the, the objection goes, well, Isaiah 9, 6, it's hard, but it's sort of a unicorn passage. Have you heard this argument before? It's only mentioned once, kind of a unicorn passage, so we can kind of slough it off. When someone tries to do that with you, please don't let them do it. Say, no, let's stay here. Let's talk about this. But I could give you a whole number other number of breadcrumb passages that say the very same thing, that the Messiah is going to be Almighty God. I'm just going to give you two. By the way, you may have noticed a big part of this message this morning is to prove to you from the scriptures what we believe about Jesus, that he is who he says he is. But let me give you two really amazing passages. Jeremiah 23. This one is loaded. Verses five and six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness, Yahweh Tzedek, our righteousness. So first, you have there the connection to the the house of David, which is essential for the Messiah, according to the flesh, a descendant of David. Then you have a messianic title, righteous branch. Third, you have a, get this now, a physical human being reigning over a physical kingdom in a physical land. It says it. And then fourth, his name's going to be Yahweh. That's in the Old Testament, you guys. Amazing, right? Who else could fulfill that description except a man who is a God-man, who is both fully human and fully divine? Wow. Okay, last one, Zechariah 12, and then I'll stop exhausting you with verses. Zechariah 12 says, I, Yahweh, will pour out on the house of David, there it is again, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, Yahweh, whom they have pierced. They pierced Yahweh? Yes. Yahweh in the flesh was pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for what? An only son. A one and only son. Wow. So look, the bottom line here is we can agree that the incarnation was was somewhat veiled to the Old Testament saints. But when you start to look closely, oh, it's there, right? It's not like the veil was so thick that rays of sunshine couldn't come through such that Old Testament saints could see it. And you know what? They did. God's remnant saw it. And they look forward to the days of Christ when he came and he was incarnate on the earth, the fulfillment of all of these things. It really is, you guys, an amazing story. And it starts so much further before that little town of Bethlehem. Okay. 
before we finish, let me give you a couple interesting comments that come out of the Jewish community. Because listen, if you're Jewish and you're intent on remaining Jewish and be faithful to Judaism, what do you do with Isaiah 9-6? How do you explain this away? Well, it's important, first of all, for me to say this. There are many Jewish traditions in history, Targum, Midrash, commentaries, that do affirm exactly what we've said today, that Isaiah 9-6 is a series of royal titles and that it absolutely applies to the Messiah. There are, there are many of those, some ancient, some medieval period, even some modern. But today, there's sort of a hardening over this. There's sort of a hardening. Whether you're a, a traditional Jew living in America or Israel, there's sort of a hardening. So there's two basic positions that a Jewish person might, might, might have on this to try to explain it away. The first one is this that this is really, that those titles are really not a description of the child, but only of God. Here's how this goes. And I'm going to hold up my Jewish study Bible again, because I think it's such an important source to have. This is a, I, I think I got this at a local bookstore. This is a, this is a, it's a Tanakh in the, in the uh, order that a Jewish Tanakh comes in, which it's sometimes hard to find the books, but it gives you rabbinical commentary on really hard passages like this. So here's what it says, sh- short version of it. Uh, what it says in my study Bible. It says, this long sentence, meaning those four titles, is the throne name of the royal child. So they acknowledge that. But these names do not describe the person who holds them, but the God whom the parents worship. Now, did you see that anywhere in the text? No. (laughs) Swing and a miss, right? He goes on, similarly, the name given to the child in this verse does not describe that child or attribute divinity to him, contrary to classical Christian teaching. So, so you, you catch the bias there, right? They're pushing back on, on the Christian interpretation of their scriptures. Look, this is a common deflection. To say that the title describes the, the, the God who the parents worship and that when he comes of age, well, that's the God that he will worship, but they don't describe him. That is an incredibly tough case to make when you just simply read the language in a straightforward way because the connection is there a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called there is no shift in identity there you guys it just you just end up having to spiritualize all this and ignoring the plain language by the way that is also true of unitarians non-trinitarians or unitarians who they start with the premise that, that God can't take on flesh, couldn't take on flesh, won't take on flesh, so we have to explain this away in some other fashion. And that is going to be their argument as well. Again, it doesn't line up with the language, either the Hebrew or the English, but they will try to do it anyway. Here's the second argument, and that's the, the titles here are really not describing God, but a spiritualized King Hezekiah. And this is very, very, I'm going to give you a quote from a group. Have you heard of Jews for Judaism? This was a group formed back in 1985 in a reaction to Jews for Jesus. Because Jews for Jesus was making a real impact in the West, in America, and and somewhat in Israel. So they said, you know, we're going to start an organization that, that tries to hold traditional Jews from looking at the New Testament to keep them from the story of Jesus. So they're a very wicked group. But here's what they say. Here's how they describe it. They say, the prophet expounds his message by formulating a prophetic name for Hezekiah. Okay, because remember, he's the one who's about to come into power. The words of this name form a sentence expressive of God's greatness, which will become manifest 
in the benefits to be bestowed upon Hezekiah in his lifetime. So get this, get this uh, explanation. They say, they say Hezekiah is called a wonderful counselor because of God's design for his life. He will be called the mighty God because of how God will use him to defend the city of Jerusalem. Right? We all, like, hermeneutically, we're all like, no, 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 this is terrible. But they go on. He's called everlasting father because God will add years to his life. He's called the ruler of peace because God will be merciful to him. Again, and you see this. You see this in Unitarians. You see this in, in people holding to Judaism. When they come to hard passages, they just spiritualize it away. And they just ignore the language. And by the way, as I shared in a previous message, Hezekiah is a really poor candidate for the Messiah. His reign, which we know historically, did not even come close to lining up with any of those titles or any of the descriptions from Isaiah or Micah about his reign. He certainly wasn't a prince of peace. Assyria came in in his day and laid waste to Judea. And there's so many other problems. I mean, you could say, first of all, Hezekiah didn't have an eternal throne, right? He long gone. <laughs> okay? So, so listen, um, don't let, when you're talking to folks about this passage, and it's a great passage to turn to, to say, what do you think this means? Don't let them spiritualize out of it. The language is very clear. Amen? All right, let me wrap up. All right, so this whole, this whole question of who is the child in Isaiah 9-6 comes back to that original question, who is this guy who commands the wind and the waves? Who does that, right? And if, if that man who's able to, to have, be sovereign over even nature, if he's not the child of Isaiah 9-6, who else could it be? If it's not Jesus, who is the answer? It's a really good question to ask, ask people. If not Jesus, who? If not Jesus, who? The plain, undeniable truth is when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus doing the works of God, doing things that only God can do. He said it himself. In John 5, you remember the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was, he was doing things on the Sabbath. And he said to them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, God doesn't take Saturday off, and I don't either, because I do the works of my Father. And he said to the crowds, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, if you're doubting what my words, what I say to you, at least look at what I've done. And so when you're talking to somebody about Christ, point them to the works that Jesus did. I do the things that God does. And we see these things. Again, brief list. Changing the underlying elements of liquid. Right? Turning water into wine. Who can do that? Forgiving people for sins. Stepping into the seat of God and say, I forgive you for sins. Healing people from diseases and deformities, giving sight to the blind, the lame walk with a simple word, not even a touch always, just a word. Who can do that? Creating matter from matter. He multiplied bread and fish. He created actual matter in the moment from other matter. Try that sometime. <laughs> Claiming the right and the privilege to give people salvation. Hmm. 
Defying the laws of physics. I just walked on the water today. Oh, okay. Raising people from the dead. That's kind of big. He raised people from the dead. Multiple people. Claiming to have an eternal pre-existence with Yahweh. With the Father. Claiming the same titles that Yahweh claims for himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Right? The first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we could go on and on. Jesus has to be the subject of Isaiah 9-6. Because he does the works of God. And it's plain for all to see. He's the God of all creation. He's the God of all glory. He is Jesus. He is the Lord who reigns in heaven. He is the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. He is the child to be born to us and the son to be given. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Let's meditate on that a bit. Lord, we are a, a grateful people this morning that, that we know this one who was prophesied so long ago and that, Lord, you made it clear to the prophet Isaiah, that you made it clear to your remnant back in the 8th century BC, that you've made it clear to us in the Gospels of the New Testament that, that God the Son, Jesus, you are a wonder in your counsel, that you are the father of eternity, that you are the prince who brings peace, and you are mighty God. And with one voice this morning, with one heart, we affirm that truth, and we trust in that truth, knowing, God, that if we don't, if we don't have it right on Jesus, we cannot be saved. We cannot put our faith in a, a person in whom we don't fully know. And so continue, Lord, by your spirit to, to seal these truths in our hearts. Give us the confidence that we need in these times of chaos, these times of trouble, to rest and have peace in this one who said who he was, says who he is. Help us to believe that more and more. Let us grow in confidence in that, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, all the dots that get connected so that we can know you better and we can worship you well this morning. We thank you for it all. In the name of that one, Jesus, amen.